Welcome to Shelter Cove. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find encouragement through today's message. For more information, check us out online at sheltercovelive.com or send us a text at 209-340-3115. Welcome, everybody. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 22 today as we continue in this series called Insecure. Now, as you're turning there, I just want to share with you that over the years in ministry, I've taken part in many Q&A sessions. Uh, In various churches, I've participated in a question and answer forum in a young adults group, in a high school group, in in a mixed adult group, in a large room like the one I'm standing in right now. And uh, the, the questions always seem to be rather similar. Most of the time when we have invited people to submit questions beforehand and we'll be on the platform and we'll draw from a jar or a box and we'll address each question individually, I notice that a lot of them tend to deal with God's permissiveness about a certain activity. People want to know, is it okay uh, to gamble? Uh, Perhaps a question might be, what does God think about drinking? What about smoking? You know, here, here in California, they've legalized marijuana. Some people might want to know, does God care if I have a joint? Um, and then there are societal morality questions. Uh, in the past, people have said, what does God think about homosexuality? You know, today, the question might be more along the lines of, can I identify with any gender that I choose? Things like that. A, a perennial question is, now that I'm divorced, is it okay with God if I get remarried? It, it, it's always... Uh, interesting to me how people are preoccupied with what God will permit. Uh, I don't get a lot of questions about what's the best way I can serve God? Uh, What's the most effective way I can share my faith? It's always, what will God let me get away with? That's not to say, of course, that there are no theology questions in a QA and a like this. One question in particular that always seems to pop up, I mean, no matter what group I'm in, it's in the top five, it's this. Can I lose my salvation. Now, why would somebody wonder about that? Perhaps it's the person who was asking all those previous questions that wants to know if they've lost their salvation. But this is a question that many, many Christians have struggled with. Well, I'm here to tell you today that God doesn't want you to struggle with this question. He wants you to know the answer. And that's what we're going to seek to find in His Word today. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we understand the importance of this question, whether or not your salvation will last. And God, I ask that you would show us in your word the answer to this question. You want us to know this. Would you guide us by your spirit today? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a look right now in John 10. We're going to start in verse 22. And just to set the stage, it starts by saying that at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so we're seeing uh, the background here. There is an event going on. It's the festival of dedication. The Jews also called this the festival of lights. We call it Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah right here. Uh, What did this commemorate? Well, this commemorated what took place in 165 B.C., In Jerusalem. You see, back then the Greeks had invaded Jerusalem, they'd conquered it. They had as their king this horrible 
anti-Semite by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he loathed the Jews and he desecrated their temple. He went in there, he took a giant sow into the temple and he slaughtered it on the altar. And he then boiled this huge sow. And you know, the Jews abhorred, uh, uh, they thought pigs were unclean, of course. And so he boils it down into this broth and he forces the priest to drink that broth, to consume the flesh of this, of this creature. He then took that, that fluid, that liquid, and he flung it all over the temple, defiling it in the eyes of the Jews. Well, they, they weren't going to put up with this. And there was an ensuing revolt. Uh, there was the Maccabean Revolt. Maybe you've heard of the Maccabees. I often think of Ross Geller in that Friends episode with the Holiday Armadillo where he's telling the story of the Maccabees. Now some of you think, some of you know what I'm talking about, some of you think I'm flat out crazy. And you'd be right on both counts. But the Maccabees revolted against Antiochus Epiphanes. They chase him out of Jerusalem. They, they reclaim their city and then they set about the task of cleansing the temple. Now, they know this is going to take a while. It's going to take about eight days. And what they need is light. So they light the lamps in the temple. But they're concerned that due to the occupation, their oil level uh, is almost depleted. They don't think they've got enough oil to keep the lamps burning in order to cleanse the temple. But as the story goes, God supernaturally allows this small bit of oil to, to keep those lamps burning all the way through for eight days. And that is the basis of Hanukkah. I don't know if you knew that. Now you do. But that is the holiday that Jesus is in town for as he walks into this temple. And it's quite poignant when you think about it. Here he is at the Festival of Lights, commemorating the cleansing of the temple. And it's the light of the world that walks in there. John has called him that early in this book. And Jesus knows this temple still needs cleansing. This temple still needs light, but it's not going to be the Maccabees that provide it. It's not going to be lamps. It's going to be the light of the world that does it. And here in verse 24, it says that the Jews gathered around him. They see him there and they gather in. They say to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, they're not asking him about his last name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a term that the Jews use to refer to the Messiah. They want to know if he's the Messiah, they say, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, the one sent from God, spit it out. Tell us in plain, in plain language, as if he hasn't done that already. And in verse 25, Jesus answered them. He said, I told you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Now, the works he's done, what, what, are, we, what are we talking about here? He's done several miracles. We've seen him turn water into wine. That's a miracle. That's a creative act. Who is it that does creation? God alone does that act, the miracle of creation. Jesus has given sight to the blind. Well, that's something only God can do. He has raised the paralyzed to walk. That's something only God can do. Uh, one chapter from here, he's going to give life to a dead man. Giving life to the dead, that's something only God can do. Jesus has commanded the winds and the waves. He has walked upon the surface of the water. That is a divine act. And all of these signs, or in the Greek, semions, they serve as works which demonstrate the deity and the authority of Christ. And so he has shown them who he is. And despite all that, the Jews say to us, say to him right there, they say, tell us plainly who you are. Now, to be fair, has Jesus come right out and said these exact words, I am God. Well, no. He's done better than that. 
if you were to walk out into our ministry mall after our services and introduce yourself to a stranger and say, hey, nice to meet you, I'm so-and-so, and they shake your hand and say, nice to meet you, I'm God, what would your response be? Well, you'd want to get away from that person most likely. But why wouldn't you take them at their word? Because anybody can say they're God. But not just anybody can demonstrate that they're God. And that is exactly what Jesus has done. He has demonstrated it time and time again. Jesus has affirmed His deity and authority. Now, let's take that principle and let's drop it in front of the person who is insecure in their salvation. All right, let's assume that you're a Christian. And by that I mean that you believe that Jesus is God. You believe that He came to the earth and He lived a perfect life and He went to the cross as a substitute for your sin and that He was died and that He was buried and rose again on the third day. And you are trusting in all that work that He did for your eternity. And yet, despite having trusted Him for your salvation, you are struggling with whether or not you can lose that salvation. Well, for you, I offer five reasons, five reasons to be secure in my salvation. And the first reason is I can be secure about my salvation because number one, it's an act of God. It's an act of God. It's like all these other miracles of Christ. It's something only God can do. I mean, when Jesus in Mark 2 sees the paralyzed man as he's lowered through the roof of that crowded house where he was preaching, he sees that man who's paralyzed and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are right there in the room and they grumble in their hearts. Well, who does he think he is forgiving sin? Jesus, of course, hears them. He knows what they're grumbling about in their heart because he's God. And he says to him, why do you grumble in your hearts? Because I've said this. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? Because I can say to you, I forgive your sin. I absolve you of anything that you've ever done. Well, you, you probably won't believe me because that's not something that can be proven. There's no evidence that I can absolve you of your sin. Ah, but if I look at a paralyzed person and I say, get up, pick up your bed, and dance around. And they do. Well, there's some proof right there that I have authority. And then you might be willing to consider that perhaps I can forgive sin. So you need to know this. You need to know that your salvation is an act of God. And, and it's Jesus Christ that made your salvation possible. I mean, you didn't. You had nothing to do with it. Your salvation wasn't dependent on you. And that's, that's pretty essential to salvation, this, this knowledge that you can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn heaven. Uh, it's a free gift. You just receive it. But listen to me, it's, it's free to you. It, it's not free in and of itself. It cost God dearly. It cost God His only Son. It cost Jesus His earthly life. And, and it's not just the act of giving your life. If you had given your life, you wouldn't have obtained salvation because your life is not, uh, does not meet the requirement that the life of Christ did. He was the perfect Lamb of God. He alone possessed the righteousness. Only God could put on flesh, come down here, live a sinless life, and die in your place and pay that price. Something only God can do. Now, when there is an obvious act of God, folks, you don't question it. All right? And that makes me wonder, why do people doubt their salvation? What is the underlying reason? Huh? Some people might assume it's a humble thing 
to question their salvation. You know, because, because it says I don't really have too high a view of myself. I would submit that a reason that a lot of people doubt their salvation is because on some level they think they have something to do with it. They think they had to do with their own salvation. Listen, understanding that the possibility of being saved is something only found in the divine work of a supreme being, that ought to give you reason to be secure in that salvation. Now watch what Jesus says to these Jews in verse 26. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep. What does sheep mean? Well, in this context, the sheep are the righteous that belong to God. We, we have another word for them from Scripture. We might call them the elect. Okay? Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not the elect of God. And this leads to number two. I can be secure about my salvation because it's a matter of God's election. Election. Okay, now I, I fully realize that this is a landmine topic right here. I have to be careful because uh, it, there's this notion that God has predestined some for salvation. And people hear that, the elect, and they, they assume that because he's elected some for salvation that he's elected everybody else for damnation. Now, I don't want to get in the weeds on this because we don't have time, but I want to clearly say to you that nowhere in Scripture do you ever find God electing people for damnation. You, you will not find that concept that God will select some people and place them on this unwavering trajectory to hell. That is not a thing in Scripture. Furthermore, I do see very clearly in Scripture the concept of man's free will, okay, that we can respond to or reject God. I mean, we, we all do wrong at some times. Have you sinned in your life? If you say no, you just did. You just lied. Now, when you sin... Did God force you to do that? Did He predetermine that you would sin? Well, no, that's an act of your will. You chose to disobey God. So we all have a will. I believe that it's clear in Scripture. Uh, the, the Bible is clear about that. However, despite that fact, I also see quite clearly in Scripture the concept that those who come to faith in Christ do so because they are chosen by God. They are the elect. This concept of the elect is absolutely present in the Word of God. Now, you may be scratching your head right now. You may be confused and you may say, well, how does that work? I don't understand. How, how do we choose God and He chooses us at the same time? I'm going to give you as deeply theological an answer as I can muster with these three pounds of fallen matter right here. You ready? When you get to heaven, ask Him. Ask Him how that works. You got it? You say, well, that sounds like a cop-out. Deal with it. I have. Okay? That, that's all I got. Sorry. And, and it, just because Scripture teaches a couple of doctrines quite clearly that my puny human brain cannot reconcile with one another doesn't mean that one of them becomes invalidated. When Scripture teaches two doctrines, I teach two doctrines. And I trust God as to how it all works, okay? But here's the takeaway, and I don't want you to miss this. The big takeaway is that if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, you are His. You belong to Him. You are His sheep. You are His property. These Jews in this verse that are questioning Him, they are not His sheep. They are not His property. Now, does Jesus mean to say that they never will be? Well, He certainly knows if they will or if they won't be. I mean, He's got that divine understanding they're not His. And 
they are evidencing that they do not belong to Him by their lack of belief. If they belonged, they'd believe. All right? Do you believe? Acts 16 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you believe? I get people come to me, they go, Pastor Scott, I, don't, I just don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved. I think I, 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 can't, I can't say for sure if I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I sit them down, I say, well, let's talk about what you believe. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son? Yes. Okay, do you believe that He lived a perfect life and died on the cross as a substitute for your sin? Yes. Okay, do you believe that He was buried and that He rose again as prophesied? Yes. Okay, and do you, are you trusting in all of that for your eternity? Yes. Okay, and is it your desire to, to turn your life over to Him and to live for Him? Yes. I'm, I'm out of questions. Okay? I mean, if you believe all of that and you confess that He is who He says He is and you're trusting in the work at Calvary to save you and you're turning your life over and your eternity over to Him, then don't squander your time fretting and wringing your hands over whether salvation is lost. Instead, walk in victory and in celebration because it is finished. And some say, well, I still make mistakes. I still have sin in my life. All right, hear me. God doesn't want that for you. But the notion that saved people no longer sin is nonsense. You still sin. It's just that when you do, you're forgiven, but you also have this, this thing in you that you didn't have before. All you had before was the old nature. Now you have a new nature. Now you still have the old nature. We're still walking around in this tainted, uh, cursed bag of meat called the flesh. All right, But you have within you the Holy Spirit. And when you sin, you're living according to your old nature, your flesh. But when you walk in victory, when you are obedient to Christ you are living according to the Holy Spirit. And we have this free will to do either in the moment. But when you sin, it's not God's best for you, but you haven't lost your salvation. Now, by, by the same token, if you sin without thought or concern, if that's something that you do consistently and you don't give it a thought, it doesn't bother you, it doesn't phase you, I think there's a problem there. I can't see in your heart with the divine x-ray vision that God has. But I think that there may be a deep problem there. Uh, because God doesn't want that for you. And there should be within you a spirit that reminds you of your righteousness. But God does not expect for perfection. Being saved does not mean being perfect. Now, I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them... And they follow me. And this leads to number three. I can be secure in my salvation because I have a changed life. A changed life. Your changed life started with a response. You responded to Christ, okay? Uh, now, as you go through your life, there is a process called sanctification where He is molding you and shaping you. And along the way, you're going to make mistakes. But there is a trajectory that is going up in terms of his, his work of shaping you and fashioning you to be more like Jesus. You are changed. And it began with your response, okay? Now, along the way, 
That change does not mean you are perpetually going to feel a certain way, okay? There are days I don't feel saved, okay? There are days I don't feel like a Christian, much less a pastor. You ought to, you ought to see some of the stuff that I want to say in my head to some people. It's, it's, it's ungodly at times. And that's because I'm, I'm, I still contend with the flesh, right? But I don't always feel like a Christian. I, always, I don't always feel victorious. I don't always feel strong. Sometimes I feel weak. Sometimes I feel insecure. I feel afraid. I feel alone. I feel unworthy. But faith is not feeling. Faith is belief and following, despite the feeling. The continuing result of that initial response is a followship. There's fellowship and there's followship. Jesus says, my sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. They follow me. There's repentance. That is a changed mind that results in a changed life over time. In the Greek, repentance is metanoia, change of mind. All right? We don't change our behavior and then come to Christ. We change our mind about who I am, about what my need is, and about who Jesus is, that He is who He says He is, and I'm going to trust in that. When that change of mind happens, guess what? Then behavior can change. But your change of mind happens first. And then as you follow, your life begins to change. And uh, we see this. People follow Christ. He says to Peter and Andrew, follow me. They leave their nets. They leave their boat. They leave father and mother. Follow Christ. He says, Matthew, follow me. He leaves his tax station, his papers, his money. He follows after Christ. And these sheep, in verse 28, what does Jesus do? He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Eternal life. What kind of life is Is that five-year life? Is that ten-year life? Is that life until I sin again? Is that life until I die, and then God weighs my good deeds against my bad, and then, you know, we'll see? No, it's eternal life. Folks, there is no salvation without eternal life. And it begins at the moment you receive Christ. It doesn't start when you die. It starts right now as you receive the gift of grace. And it is sustained throughout your life. When you are saved, you're not just saved from damnation. Christ puts the very life of God in you. That's what eternal life is. Now, this is a profound... When he says, I give them eternal life, recap what we've learned about what Christ believes. Does Jesus believe that our salvation has everything to do with a divine act by him? Yes. Does Jesus believe that those who belong to him were chosen by him? Yes. Does Jesus believe that those who respond to him would be dramatically changed? Yes. And now look what he believes. He says, I give them eternal life. And this leads to number four. I can be secure about my salvation because Jesus is trustworthy. Can I lose my salvation? No. How do you know that? Because Jesus said so. Do you believe him? That's the question. Do you take Jesus at his word? He says, I give them eternal life. Now, set that aside. Do you need to hear Jesus say that? He gave you a brain. Let's use some logic here. Lost salvation doesn't even make sense. Lost salvation, that's an oxymoron. I mean, that's right up there with jumbo shrimp and working vacation and Senate intelligence. All right? It's a contradiction in terms there's no such thing as lost salvation. Can I, by my own works, undo what I did not accomplish by my own works? 
Bigger question, can I undo by my own works that which God did by divine work? Can I thwart God? It's, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. Now, if you believe that you earned your salvation by human works, I mean, I, I could actually understand how you might believe that you could lose it by human works. I fully comprehend why Catholics think you can lose your salvation because they believe it can be earned. I don't understand how supposedly Bible-believing Protestant evangelicals who believe that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, could ever come to the conclusion that we could lose our salvation. I know I'm saved by grace, but apparently I can sin bad enough that he could take it away. Look, if it's obtained by an act of man, it can be lost by an act of man. But this is an act of God. And it can only be overturned by an act of God. And Jesus has just very clearly said that will never happen. Do you believe him? He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now look, there's a whole lot of scripture I could throw at you that supports this idea of eternal security in Christ but if all we had in the entire Bible was this one verse, it'd be all we need. And we don't even need this whole verse. All we need is half of it. And I give them eternal life. That's all you need right there. Now, the second phrase, and they will never perish in Greek, there's a double negative there. Basically, it's interpreted as they shall never by any means perish. And an English teacher might dock Jesus' a point right there, double negative. But it's worse because he's prefaced it by saying, I give them eternal life. Well, Jesus, <laughs> I mean, it, if it's eternal life that you give them, you don't need to go on and say that they will never perish and use a double negative. Check, check, check. I mean, red ink all over Jesus' paper right here. Can you lose your salvation? No. Now, you might be thinking of other verses that you've seen in Scripture that seem to contradict this at, at first glance. Are those verses out there somewhere? Sure they are. Can they be dealt with? Yes, they can. I've dealt with a number of them. Some of you might be thinking of Hebrews 6. You want to check our sermon archive at the Cove here? I did a sermon on Hebrews 6 and I answered that question. But listen to me. Let me tell you something about theology. You don't take lesser concepts from passages that are unclear and use them to reinterpret major concepts from passages that are abundantly clear. Okay, you don't, you don't use the foothills to reinterpret Mount Everest. This is Mount Everest. Can you lose your salvation? No. But that English teacher is about to take off another point because Jesus goes on. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, well, if it's eternal life and you've already said they will never by any means perish, obviously no one's going to snatch them out of your hand. Why is Jesus going so overboard here? Because he wants us to get this. Unequivocally, you can't lose salvation. He knows that we are but sheep, and sheep are dumb. We have to have it spelled out for us. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know what that means? That means your security is not dependent on you because you're a sheep. How many sheep chase off the wolves? Zero. Whose job is that? It's the shepherd's job. Your security is dependent on the shepherd. The only way that you could ever be lost again is if Jesus is a lousy shepherd. 
And I don't know anybody that thinks you can lose your salvation that would ever say that Jesus is a lousy shepherd. But I've heard some say, and I kid you not, I've heard some people say, well, you know, nobody can snatch me from his hand, but I could jump out. I could jump out. And then they just kind of look at you like, what do you think about that? What are you going to do with that? Are you, are you serious? You could jump out? Really? Okay, well, let me get this straight. God is so powerful that Christ can hold on to you and keep you from being pried away by all of the forces from without, but little old you are so powerful that you could just wiggle free from his kung fu grip. That's what you're saying? It's ridiculous. And Jesus says, no one takes my sheep. That includes you. Okay? And if that's not enough, he goes on in verse 29, because somebody might think, okay, no, wait, 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 wait. The father is the father, and you're the son. Now, and this is true. There's a procession of authority in the Trinity. I mean, God the Father has all authority. Uh, God the Son is in submission to the Father, and the Spirit is in submission to the Son. I mean, that's a concept. That's why we refer to the Trinity in that order. And so, with that logic, somebody might say, well, what if the Father and the Son disagree? I mean, Jesus loves me, this I know, but I'm not too sure about the Dad. Okay. Well, what does Jesus say about that? He says in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me. All right? There's complicity. John, John 5 tells us that the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The, the Father and the Son are, are of one mind. He says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, Here's you, Christian. Jesus has his hand around you. Here's God's hand over the hand of the Son. Anything getting in or out of that? Not a chance. That is ironclad right there. And then he takes it even further in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. They are one. And this leads us to number five. I can be secure in my salvation because Jesus shares the Father's authority and purpose. They have the same exact essence. And that means they are of one mind. They, have, they share authority. They share purpose. They are utterly, completely unified. They work together when it comes to your salvation. And this perfect unity extends all the way through the Trinity. It's not just Father and Son, but that third person of the Trinity gets in on this too. The Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee. A guarantee of what? Well, in Ephesians, Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He's the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. When we get to our ultimate redemption... He's our guarantee for that moment right there. This is translated, that word guarantee is also translated as earnest. Earnest. You know what earnest money is? When you want to buy something, a car, a truck, whatever, and you put down earnest money, what is that? That's good faith right there. That means if I don't show up on closing day and, and seal this deal, I forfeit that earnest money. 
Therefore, if God lets you get away, if God loses you, if he does not seal the deal on the day of your ultimate redemption, he has to forfeit the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Is God going to give up a third of his essence, of his being? No. No, he's not. This is a claim to divinity. Did the Jews see it that way? You bet they did. How do I know that? Because <laughs> in verse 31, it says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. See, they said he was blaspheming. He was claiming to be God and they sought to kill him. Did Jesus ever claim to, to be God? Well, the Jews sure thought he did. And this is what depraved mankind does. Man hears the truth. He perceives the truth. He understands it. But in the end, in depravity, man confirms what the Apostle John has already said in chapter 3. He says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness more than the light because their works were evil. This is what the world does. We hear truth and we doubt it. That's what the world does. Christians aren't meant to do that. You see, doubting what Christ has done and said is an example of what the world, the lost, naturally does. But for those of us who have received the light, just because you find yourself walking through a dark valley, just because you're afraid just because you feel weak. Don't you assume that that lamp has gone out. You see, you're being sanctified. There is a temple cleansing going on. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit and He is purifying you from the inside out and it's going to take sustained light to accomplish that cleansing. And folks, the light of the world never goes out. That lamp continues to burn for the rest of your days until you stand in judgment, perfect, holy, and blameless. I leave you with this quote from V. Raymond Edmond, former president of Wheaton College. He said, never doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. You are His and no one takes His sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great truth. We praise you because you never let us go. Your grip is sure. Your grace is everlasting. You will keep us because your word is good. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.